Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist or have a PhD in astrophysics to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I don't have a PhD in astrophysics. Mm-hmm. And I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Hackett, who also does not, I think, I'm, I should check, have a PhD in astrophysics. Hi, Stephen. I've been doing it at night, you know? Uh, no, we both have journalism degrees, but that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm a master of journalism. What are you talking about? Uh, we do, speaking of PhDs of astrophysics, this episode does feature one. It does. Later in this episode, we're going to be talking to our an astronaut. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Dr. Ed Liu about uh, uh, asteroids, the B612 Foundation, and protecting Earth from dangerous asteroids that are lurking in the solar system. So that that's going to be a lot of fun, but there is too much space news for us just to devote the entire episode there is. to our interview. So we should kick it into gear, I guess. I I wanted to start with Venus news, if that's okay with you. I knew you would want to. I you know it. You know it. I've been a big uh, advocate for for uh, going back to Venus. Uh and it's happening, people. It's happening. So we told you that there were uh, a a bunch NASA cut to four or five the number of possible missions in their Discovery mission class series, and they were going to pick two winners. Uh, they picked them, and they're both going to Venus. They decided not to kind of hedge and like do one outer solar system and inner solar system. I think the feeling was that everybody agreed. Even if you look at the quotes, even the people who were advocating for the other things, they're obviously disappointed, but everybody's like, yeah, but we also haven't done a Venus mission in a very long time. So Mm -hmm. uh, two discovery missions to Venus have been selected by NASA. It's very exciting. Um, Da Vinci Plus, yes, which you can't subscribe to. It's not like a TV streaming service. Don't look for Da Vinci Plus. Actually, there was a Da Vinci, and it didn't get funded. And so they did a new mission, and they just called it Da Vinci Plus. And it got funded, so I guess the plus is the secret there. It stands for Deep Atmosphere of Venus, Investigations of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging. Again, trying really hard, but it's a great name, Da Vinci Plus. Love it, Mm -hmm. plus. Uh, it's a uh, it's going down. It is entering Venus's atmosphere. It's going to sample it on the way down to the surface where it will be crushed like a tin can and melted into oblivion. But on the way down, it's going to learn a lot about what's in the Venusian atmosphere. And then there's Veritas, Venus Emissivity, which is a hard word to say, so you'd see why you put it in an acronym, Radio Science, INSAR, yes, it's an acronym inside an acronym, Topography and Spectroscopy spectroscopy but veritas truth that's good i like it uh this is kind of an update on magellan which was the last big u.s mission to venus in the early 1990s so a long time ago now which is why veritas should be about a hundred times better than magellan was at getting detailed surface imaging of venus um which means that we should be able to learn a whole lot more about the history of the planet the composition of the surface including volcanism is there some was there some and even plate tectonics because we don't know like are we seeing continents uh that are that are on these elevated portions of the land on venus or not don't really know need a lot more resolution 100 times better resolution that's pretty good so two nasa missions to venus very exciting. Mm-hmm. But wait. But there's a third. But wait, Stephen, there's more. There's one more. 
ESA, the European Space Agency, announced they are also sending a mission to Venus. Yes. It's like they planned this or something. It's called Envision, and it's another orbiter like Veritas. It will analyze the surface, the subsurface, and the atmosphere from orbit. So three missions going to Venus in the next little while, next few years. And then off in the distance is at least the possibility that the decadal survey will suggest that uh, analysis of Venus is merited. And there is this one proposal that's floating around out there. I mean, literally floating around out there, ah. uh, which is a flagship mission to Venus. And that would include, you know, my favorite thing, which is airships in another planet. So we've had we've had a helicopter on Mars. We're going to send another helicopter to Titan. But how about a couple of airships in Venus's atmosphere? That is what would be proposed in that future flagship mission. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The real story here is three individual missions going to Venus in the next few years. So we will learn a lot more about Earth's closest companion. I mean, the moon doesn't get planetary companion. Sorry, moon. Sorry, moon. I didn't. I, I love you, but you're not a planet. Um, and also about, you know, most similar in terms of uh, size. You know, we, we focus on Mars because you're not going to melt if you land on it. But Venus has so much in common with the Earth and yet is a hellhole. So let's find out more about that. And we will. It's exciting. Very exciting. Venus. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about Perseverance a little bit. Okay, so I, I, you know, said thing, untoward things about Mars there. I apologize to the moon and Mars. I'm just going to apologize to the whole solar system, except for those asteroids. Uh, more about them later. Tell me about what Percy is up to now. Yes, so Perseverance has now completed all of its post-landing systems checks. So obviously you want to make sure that all your hardware is good after flying through space and being dropped to the red planet with a sky crane. Uh, there's also involved in that is a software changeover. So the rover has different software states it's in for the cruise and landing and then this startup process. And now all that's complete and it's kind of in its uh, mode that it will stay in to go rove around Mars and do stuff. So all that's been going on. The beginning of this is going to be to drive to a uh, scenic overlook. You, you got to get the views in. One reason Jezero Crater was chosen is that it has some of the oldest geological features that are easy and safe to get to with a rover on the planet. Uh, you have this uh, exposed ancient bedrock in parts of the crater. And so the Perseverance team is going to be driving and exploring about a one and a half square mile area of the crater floor, which is the oldest surface in the area. So you can really look back in time at Mars's makeup. It's made of up of rough, hard bedrock, uh, but there's also areas covered in sand and, and even some sand dunes. And the plan is to drive kind of along the areas where these two different geographies meet and then sort of dip into the sand and get what you need to over there and then maybe go back to some bedrock. So they have this all mapped out. And if you look at the, the links in the show notes, it's basically a, a big circle and they're going to end up uh, back at the landing site. And between now and then, it's going to be hundreds of Martian days uh, to, to make this journey. But it will be collecting up to eight of the 43 sample tubes. Remember, one thing that, that Percy's doing is picking up samples for the Mars sample return mission, which will take place in the future. And so up to eight of those uh, can be filled on this trip, depending on 
uh, what they come across and what they discover. It's basically up to the team as they go uh, what they want to collect. But they have eight uh, possible sample return tubes sort of earmarked for this first journey. It's a long process. You talk about having a lo- playing a, a long game. Yeah. This is a long game of sample return. Absolutely. It's good. What's uh what's going on with helicopters though? Again, give me my uh airships and pl- other planets uh fix, please. Uh yeah, so Ingenuity completed its seventh flight uh just about a week ago. It is now in the extended mission phase, and so it needs less support from the rover. They've done all of the initial uh testing that they wanted to do with it, and now they're just kind of pushing it further and further. Uh basically Perseverance is going to to move on, you know. Ingenuity is all grown up, I guess. They grow up so fast. They do. They do. <laughs> uh, I have a little bit of an update, if that's okay with you. Please. Uh, from Jupiter. Oh, man, we're just traveling all over the place. I Oh, man, space is big. There's a lot to get to. Uh, so Jupiter, Juno, we've been talking about for a while. And the long story here, Juno has been doing a great job at Jupiter. It had some issues with some of its thrusters where it ended up not doing these like really tight uh, orbits around Jupiter, but instead sort of like elongated orbits. But, uh, you know, it's done amazing science, great imaging, has has uh, provided lots of data to scientists who are studying the composition of Jupiter. It has been, and I think we talked about this recently, extended for four more years, and it's wrapping up its primary mission to explore Jupiter and adjusting into new orbits that will allow it to fly by Jupiter's moons. This is sort of what it's doing in its extended mission. So it's added... 42 additional orbits. Remember, it's a very large orbit, so it it spends most of its time way out. Right. Uh, and then it plunges into the Jovian system, into the, the, the depths of it, and then it flies way back away again. So you get these quick moments. And it just did its uh, close first close examination of Ganymede, which is a very interesting moon of Jupiter. And we call these, you know, Jovian moons, moons, but like Ganymede's bigger than Mercury. Yeah. Like these are all very large bodies that are, are the moons of Jupiter, or at least the big ones are very big. Um, and there's lots to learn about them. Uh, Ganymede's the only moon that we know of that has its own magnetosphere. So like it's got a, I guess, a spinning a magnetic core or something so it, it its magnetosphere interacts with jupiter's it's like it's really interesting and because juno's already in the neighborhood basically they built this extended mission where juno is going to look at ganymede close up io close up and europa close up and there are some missions that are coming in the next decade or so to jupiter but this is going to lay the groundwork for those missions while they're in the planning and execution stages um, Juno is going to be able to give them a lot of data, which can be very valuable in figuring out exactly what you're going to do and what you're going to look for. So it's a great example of having a spaceship in Jupiter orbit that has really held up well doing its primary mission and saying what more you know other science could we get out of this? Yeah, and this is after remember a few years ago Juno had an issue with some internal valving, and so it's orbit around Jupiter isn't quite what was planned, but the team made it work. And now on this extended mission, exploring more of the the system around Jupiter, uh, this spacecraft has definitely earned its keep. Yep, for sure. For sure. It's uh, it's still going. Mm-hmm. Now we got our big interview uh, that's going to take up the bulk of the episode, but um, we got to squeeze in an SLS segment. 
the space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. Oh, you mean the space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia is now? Great. <laughs> it looks like a rocket all of a sudden. <laughs> That's the update. So yeah, the uh, the core <laughs> stage, of course, uh, underwent testing uh, on the test stand in Mississippi, got put on a barge, went around to Florida, and now has been lifted into place in the vehicle assembly building in between its two five-segment solid rocket boosters. Uh, they have been assembled for a little while now. This is all happening uh, in the VAB in High Bay 3, which is just... Maybe if you ever get a chance to, to go see the inside of this building, you should go see Oof. the inside of it. Yeah. It's massive. Uh, sometimes you look at these pictures that NASA puts out, and like you spot a person, It's like, and it really puts it into scale how how big this thing is. Uh, but So it's it's all getting put together with the SRBs on either side. And up next is going to get a little bit taller. So the the propulsion stage uh, that basically goes on the back of the Orion service module, uh, the ICPS, that is being stacked uh, above the core stage. There's uh, also a vehicle stage adapter, which goes in there uh, to help connect everything. So it is really shaping up pretty quickly uh, now that it's vertical and they can get these other components strapped to it. Uh, with eventually uh, Orion being at the the very, very tippy top, it <laughs> it looks like a rocket. What, what can you say? It's a it's a thing. All of a sudden, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, it does. It it really is amazing when you start to see it coming together, and you say, "Oh, right there it is." Right, like it's it feels much more real now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Artemis One, of course, is uh, uncrewed currently. NASA is targeting late November. For this launch, but as we've spoken about, end of the year means early the next year, probably. So it could be early 22 before this thing uh, leaves the ground, but it is really shaping up at this point. Uh, so let's take a break and then we can introduce our guest. How does that sound? Sounds great. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all in one platform to build your online presence and run your business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace has got you covered with what you need. Their platform combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your home online and to make your ideas a reality. Squarespace comes with everything you need to create a beautiful and a modern website. You start with a professionally designed template and use drag-and-drop tools to make it your own. And customize the look and feel, the settings, the products you have on sale, all with just a few clicks. And all of their websites are optimized for mobile, so your content automatically adjusts, so it'll look great on any device. You also get unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There's nothing to patch or upgrade. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you have any questions. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. Plus, you have everything you need for SEO and email marketing to get your ideas out into the world. So you can use Squarespace to turn your next big idea into a website, to showcase your work, to write a blog, announce upcoming events, and so much more. I love using Squarespace. It is my go-to platform for building sites for small businesses, for nonprofits, all sorts of things you can build on Squarespace because they have all those tools just ready to go. 
So head to squarespace.com slash liftoff for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code liftoff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff. And when you sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the show and Relay FM. Okay, it's time for our special guest. Our, our special guest is Dr. Ed Liu. He's a former astronaut. He flew on two space shuttle missions. He spent six months in space as part of the International Space Station Expedition 7 and is the co-founder and, I think, board chair of the B612 Foundation. So, Dr. Ed Liu, welcome to Liftoff. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me on. Now, we're going to talk about Asteroid Day uh, and we're going to talk about dangerous asteroids, and we're going to talk about the B612 Foundation. But I wanted to start by talking a little bit about your background. You are our first astronaut, and <laughs> so thank you for that. Oh, really? Uh, first astronaut we've talked to. Um, we're everywhere. I can't believe I'm the first one. <laughs> There's just so many. You just walk down the street and you bump into an astronaut. <laughs> but unless you see the pin, you don't know that they're whether they're an astronaut or not. Just ask them; they'll tell you, right? <laughs> I mean, I wanted to ask. You went to Cornell and you went to graduate school at Stanford, and and, that, and then in your bio, it's like, and then in 1994 you became an astronaut. I'm like, okay, how did it happen? How how does it happen that you go off to to school and then uh, you turn around and you're uh, you're an astronaut and you're training to go um, on the space shuttle? Well, it was, first off, it was a long time. It was 10 years after I left college. Um, so in the meantime, I, what I did was I went and got a PhD in astrophysics at Stanford. Um, and I was working as a scientist. I was uh, uh, had a budding career as a scientist um, in high-energy astrophysics. And uh, I was also a pilot on the side for fun. I, I, I was flying an aerobatic plane in Hawaii, uh, which we used to give rides to tourists and air shows, that sort of stuff. and um, and I was a wrestling coach, so that um, I was a wrestler in college, and then I was co I had coached for many years, so I was a high school wrestling coach. A friend of mine told me, "Hey, you know, you can you can apply to become an astronaut," and I said, "Well, how do you do that?" And this was in the days when you actually had to send a letter, you know, put a stamp on an envelope uh, <laughs> to NASA, and they sent you an application, a big giant set of forms which you filled out. And uh, so I, I did that. And then I got a call maybe a year later or so, would have been early 94 or mid 1994. And they said, hey, we'd like you to uh, go get an FAA physical, which I already had one because I was a pilot, but I went and got another one, sent that in. Um, it was just like a precursor thing. And then, then I got a phone call that said, hey, can you come down to Houston, Texas for an interview? I'm like, okay, hmm. you know, what day is the interview go? It's a week. <laughs> it's a week long interview. So I, uh, they flew me down to Houston and you know, it's, it's literally, it's all day, every day for a week and, um, came home going, well, that was really cool. Um, you know, met some really great folks, got the tour of the space center, got to see, you know, what it's really like there. And I don't have a shot because I make my God, some of those people are pretty well qualified. Um, and then, the months roll by and you don't hear anything and you have no idea what's going on. And then one day you get a phone call and they ask you if you want to come to move to Houston and become an astronaut. And so that's how it all happened. Wow. I like to know that people with uh, PhDs in astrophysics also have um, uh, imposter syndrome. That's <laughs> yeah. nice to know. It's like, well, it's not going to be me. Well, well you, you know, you, you go there and then and you meet the other, 
you know, applicants, they, we interviewed applicants 20 at a time for a week. And, uh, you know, they're all test pilots because, you know, they're looking for sort of that kind of operational experience. And, you know, I, I had flown, you know, light general aviation aircraft. And, you know, these, these guys are not just F-16 or F-18 pilots, but they're F-16 or F-18 test pilots. And they're oh. like the lead test pilot and they have a PhD. You know, okay, well, you're, they're pretty well qualified. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Hard to, hard to argue with that resume. Uh, something we've been talking a lot about on the show in the the recent months with the rise of commercial crew, and then we have Tom Cruise going to go film a movie at the space station, apparently, is that the ISS is really experiencing a busy season. And in a world that is post-shuttle, it's been very interesting to see all of these new players arriving at the space station. But on your shuttle missions, it was those early days. And I'm curious, what was it like seeing the International Space Station come together? And how do you think about those days now, so many years later, that it's still a very busy spot in orbit? Yeah, it was... uh... There was nobody on board the first time I visited it, and it, it and we were installing the the main living module. It's called the service module at the time, uh, which had flown up autonomously and then docked with it. But a lot of the equipment on it was too heavy to be launched with it. So we carried it up on the shuttle. We docked with it. We did did spacewalk outside, and we uh, you know installed all out of the uh, electrical system and life support system in there. Um, but it was you know. It, it was empty when we got there. It was empty when we left, right? So it was it was kind of weird. A um, couple of years later, I ended up going up there immediately after we lost Columbia. That was the beginnings of the uh, a series of skeleton crews that we put up there. You know, sort of. The, I flew the first rescue mission up there, which well, rescue in quotes, meaning like, what are we going to do to keep the program alive? Can we keep two people up there after we lose the sh- after the shuttles are going to be grounded for some indefinite period of time? decided the answer was yes. And then they ran me through the Soyuz training program uh, in sort of record time. And nine weeks after Columbia went down, uh, I flew on a Soyuz with just one other person. So uh, it was an interesting time. There were three people up there and they, we took over for them. And then it was, I was the first of the two person crews, which we had for a couple of years. And uh, so, you know, again, kind of a quiet place <laughs> for two people on board for six months. Wow. And and, and I, I think it's expanded a lot since then, right? Because when the shuttles did return to flight, they had more International Space Station assembly and construction to do. So I imagine it's it's a it's a bigger, busier place now than it was when you were there. Yeah, there's several more modules now. Uh, and uh, so it's about doubled in internal volume size, I think from about, from the time when I was there, but, um, you know, most of the main systems were already in. And when you see stuff about the ISS, do you have that moment of sort of like, Hey, I live there. Like it's an old apartment that you used to live in or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. I would love to visit again. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're doing that now. There are a lot of, uh, former astronauts who are, uh, who are finding strange ways to get back to the ISS these days. So you never know. <laughs> yeah, a couple of my old a couple of my old friends are flying again. Um would be fun to do, but and since I can't pay my own way. <laughs> you just gotta talk to Axiom Space. Who knows? Um <laughs> All right. Well, so they need a volunteer, I'll go. All right. Fair enough. 
the, the reason uh, that we're talking, and and thanks to our our, our friend listener uh, Matthew who uh, suggested that we talk to you, but way back in December actually, is this event uh, June thirtieth, which is Asteroid Day, and you're the executive director of uh, the B six twelve Foundation, and that has to do with asteroids, especially maybe the uh, the bad kind that might get us at some point. Could you tell us a little bit about? Uh, the B612 Foundation and what, what your mission is? Yeah, the, the B612 Foundation was founded to prevent, with the stated goal of preventing large asteroid impacts on Earth. We get small ones all the time, you know, shooting stars, that sort of stuff. But what we don't want is things like Tunguska to happen again. So Tunguska happened on June 30th of 1908, uh, where a roughly 45-meter asteroid hit luckily uninhabited Siberia, uh, but a 45-meter asteroid moving at roughly 20 kilometers per second uh, packs a lot of energy. It packs enough en- energy larger than sort of our largest operational nuclear weapon. It took out an area roughly the size of metropolitan London, or you know, pick your favorite large city. It's bigger than the, it's roughly that size. L.A. Basin, call it. Those things happen, you know, fairly frequently. You know, like every few hundred years on Earth, and even a little less frequently, you end up with things that are larger, uh, something of order 100 megatons of energy, which should be sort of equivalent to a nuclear war in terms of, or, or like a world war, like World War II, all the bombs used in World War II is a little less than that. So, um, you know, very good size explosion. Something like that hits Earth um, about every 10,000 years, which sounds like a, you know, a long time, but that's in your lifetime, probably about a 1% chance. So it's not that small. And um, that's cer- certainly, you know, that's enormously larger than Tunguska. So, and then about every million years or so, we get hit with a one kilometer size asteroid. And a one kilometer size asteroid is, is sort of understood to be the end of human civilization as we know it. And those hit Earth about every, every million years or so. So, you know, we certainly don't want those things big things to happen on our watch. And it turns out the technology for doing this is fairly straightforward. It's, it's 99% of it is finding and tracking where all these objects are first. And then, you, then if you have decades of notice, which you would get if you knew where everything was, then the, the, the act of actually deflecting an asteroid is relatively straightforward. It, it in, involves changing the velocity of the asteroid by a, a very, 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 very tiny amount, um, part in 10 to the 6 or 10 to the 7. And uh, that's entirely possible. Uh, in fact, uh, NASA's doing a test mission of uh, test deflection of an, a non-threatening asteroid uh, launching in about, let me see, seven, eight months from now. And uh, we'll deflect that next year. So pretty neat. So, you know, we're at the step stage now where human civilization is transitioning from where if we got wiped out by an asteroid, you know, that would be just bad luck, right? But now that we have the technology and the, the science and the technology to do this, the telescopes, the rockets, um, you know, now we can do something about it. So we're just transitioning to the point where it's under our control whether or not we get wiped out. And so our contention is that we ought to actually do these things. So do you advocate for uh, space policy? I mean, this is a big issue, right? We're talking about uh, asteroids uh, moving around in the solar system, uh, 
a small chance that they'll hit us, but over a long enough time scale, uh, almost a certainty. And if they, if they do, it's really, really bad. But it is this har- hard to get your arms around, like the idea of global defense, essentially. So, so what is what is your foundation? You know, do is it advocating for funding? Is it is it trying to do stuff itself? Uh, you know, what are you, what are you all well, involved with? Uh, we push this from the scientific end because the, the sort of understanding of how you calculate orbits and how you understand the uncertainties in orbits, which tells you how you calculate, which is the key element in understanding what the impact probability of any given asteroid is. We participate in that scientific research. We are pushing the f- frontiers of how we track asteroids. Remember, 99% of the battle is simply tracking the asteroids. And so that um, mm. we are, and this is primarily a, once you have the telescopes, it's primarily a computational problem. Uh, it's turning all that data into trajectories and uncertainties and future predictions of the locations of asteroids. How are we doing on tracking what's out there? Is there an, uh, some sort of estimation about how many things that we may not know about? Yeah, and it's really easy to estimate the number of things you know that you don't know about, which is you, and remember asteroids come in all different sizes from small to large, okay? And mo, mo, far more small than there are large. So what you do is you, you track asteroids, you, say, you, you, you look in the sky with your telescope, you see an asteroid, you calculate its size, we can get into that later, but you calculate its size and you say, um, have I seen it before? And the greater the fraction of asteroids that you have tracked of that size, the more often you will say, yes, I've already seen it, right? If I already know where 100% of them are, every time I see one, I've already seen it before, right? It's already in my in my list, right? If right. 99% of the time it's not in my list, then I've only tracked 1% of them, basically, right? Uh, you have to take into account... You look some areas more often than others. There's some complications to this, but that's basically it. So we really know pretty well how many asteroids there are. And the answer is that for the very largest of asteroids, the ones that would wipe out human civilization, we know where 95% of those are. So that's pretty good. That means we're, and none of them are going to hit the earth in the next century of the ones we've seen, of the ones we've seen. There's still 5% of them out there that we haven't yet tracked. Good. Um, For the ones that would, be sort of the uh, 100 megaton-ish impact energy, you know, the once once every 10,000 years. We're not doing so well there. We've tracked maybe 20%, 20, 25% of those. Um, So for most of the cases of those, those would be arriving unannounced, right? So uh, um, that is, in fact, is the goal that Congress gave to NASA Oh, it's been 12, 13 years now since they gave that goal to NASA saying, track 90% of those within 10 years. And NASA did not. Um, It's been 10 years, more than 10 years, and they have not. There is a bright light on the horizon here. It's two things. Number one, the National Science Foundation funded the world's largest ground-based observatory for tracking asteroids uh, called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Uh, the observatory itself goes by the name of the Vera Rubin Observatory, Vera Rubin being a famous astronomer. And uh, it opens, uh, it's, it's under construction right now, the dome is complete, the main mirror's in, uh, and so on, but it, it opens for operations in about two years. First light is actually within a year, and then operations within two years. So that itself is going to be able to track 70% within 10 years of 
these larger asteroids, the, the 100 megaton explosion one. NASA is proposing and is provided preliminary funding for a space telescope, which would take, if you add it to the Vera Rubin Observatory, would take that census of asteroids in that size range from 70% to 90%. So we'll get there only two decades late. <laughs> the big missing thing now is those that are only the Tunguska size. Remember, those are far more common, but they are far smaller. You know, the Tunguskas, you know, again, the last one of those that we had was 1908. Uh, we had one about half that size um, in 2013. So just a few years ago in, over the Russian city of Chelyabinsk. But we're not doing as well there. Uh, we expect, we've currently only tracked maybe a percent, a little less than a percent of those. So uh, we're, we're going to need some sort of new technology to do that. And that, that is something that we're actively working on. So would the idea there be ground-based observations or, or would we be better off floating something, putting something up in, I, I'm not even sure what orbit that would be, whether it would be sort of like a, a around the earth or whether it would be, a, you know, closer into the sun or something like that, but a, a, some sort of observatory in space. So, so what's, what's the best approach, do you think, or is it a combination of approaches to find the little guys? The, to find the little guys, and little meaning, you know, just the size of a very, very large nuclear weapon. Um, a, uh, yep, those ones. Uh, the best way to do that is actually, we believe, going to smaller space telescopes, much, much smaller. This is the, this is the trend of, of satellites today. And going to many of them rather than, you know, massive, large, single observatory. And the reason for that is because you, these objects actually have to be closer to the telescopes to be seen because they're smaller. And so you're going to want more telescopes out there. And, and the way to do that is to build your telescope small and inexpensive. So like a, a surveillance network of relatively small telescopes. Yeah, yeah. Now, now remember here that, you know, earlier on you made a statement, which I wanted to challenge, which is that this is a really big deal in terms of what it takes to do. And the answer is it, it's actually not. The beauty of this particular problem is that it's ridiculously small in terms of global challenges. You know, if you if I look at the other global challenges that face us, this is one one ten thousandth, one hundred thousandth the scale and size, expense and difficulty of solving. It's almost trivial compared to solving climate, compared to solving, you know, mm -hmm. the, the the social problems that we have, compared to solving those types of things which involve changing the attitudes and lifestyles of billions of people. And in this case, we're talking something that would be a fraction of a single percent of the budget of a single space agency in one country. Well, so talk about the different space agencies. Isn't that one of the challenges is this is global defense? And is there is there a global unified sort of like strategy here or is it left to individual space agencies to figure it out on their own? <laughs> That's a good question. There are United Nations agreements. Well, so, so one of the things that Asteroid Day has really push forward is the discussions in places like the United Nations about, you know, first off, everybody said, hey, it would be a great idea if we didn't get hit by a large asteroid. Good. That's a good agreement. Then there's like, what would we do if we <laughs> agreed <laughs> saw one? And well, okay, you know, we, we would share data and we would come to an agreement. So that there's a working group that to do that. And then once you find one that is that you need to deflect, then there is the whole, you know, who gets to work on it? So there's a, there's a planning group. So there's um, 
a mission operations group there of spacefaring nations that have signed up to say, we'll be part of that. So this is sort of the, you know, this is the way the United Nations works, right? Over slowly over glacial timescales, they come up with agreements and, and these sort, but, but they're necessary. And, and those things have gone through. What, what hasn't really happened thus far has been, you know, the, the full census of asteroids, but that's, that's getting better. As I mentioned, you know, these two, you know, at least one of these major telescopes is fully funded and is opening soon. Um, one of them is, is well on its way. I think the space, NASA space telescope called NEOSM. That's its uh, acronym. They love acronyms there. Mm. You know, there's movement here. So I, I think we're getting to be in a good place here. It's the best we've been at since I've been involved in this field, since we helped sort of start this whole field a couple decades ago. So what are the, the goals for the foundation moving forward? What are the things on, on your desk that you're looking to advance? Well, we, are, we want to advance both the understanding of how you do deflections, um, which uh, is, is something that we helped start that whole discussion a couple of decades ago. Um, and number, but primarily, we're about figuring out ways for us to find and track the asteroids in the solar system that could be a danger to Earth. We are actually part of the collaboration team for the Vera Rubin Observatory, and we are uh, helping build the, the the algorithms that will be analyzing that data. And, and it is a lot of data. It's about a petabyte per night will be coming down uh, from that. Uh, it's more than a petabyte, four petabytes a night, I believe, is, is the number. I mean, so it is... Uh, uh, there's a lot of data, and this is this is what I always said is primarily a computational problem, and uh, so you know we're we're working on uh, cloud-based systems to do that. And if people want to get involved with the work, the foundation, the issue, where would you have them start? I'd start at the website, same as everybody else, b612foundation.org. Very nice, and people a little behind the scenes, uh, the uh, the mailing address of of that foundation. It's a neighbor of mine. It's in my town. So that's pretty awesome. <laughs> that just down I the street. I didn't know that my town was so actively involved in protecting the earth. It's good to know. Some, yeah. Someday in the annals of history, maybe Mill Valley will, will have a, you know, a spot there because of all this. Well, gold star, save the earth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Dr. Liu, I'm so happy that you uh, have joined us today. We, this has been months in the planning. It's just great. Um, and do you have any, before we go, do you have any suggestions? Do we celebrate Asteroid Day or do we like, Well, are we supposed to be scared on Asteroid Day? I, I like the idea of having an Asteroid Day, but I, I wonder sometimes, is like, yay, asteroids? <laughs> well, I think it's more of a celebration because remember, you know, asteroids themselves aren't good or bad, right? They're, 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 they're parts of the, the universe we live in, right? They're, they're part of our solar system. And... In fact, the, the majority of the objects in our solar system are asteroids, vast majority. They're smaller, but they're, that's in terms of numbers. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're interesting from a scientific standpoint. They're an interesting from a space resources and space development standpoint. And they're interesting from a protect the Earth standpoint. So Asteroid Day is really a, a combination of all of that. And, you know, it's sort of a celebration of the, the scientists and the engineers working on these things. Uh, which I think are going to be very, very important to human beings going forward for all those reasons. Well, thank you again for being on Liftoff. We really appreciate it. This was, uh, this was great, and it's good to learn. I actually feel 
a little bit safer than I was worried that I was going to feel after we talked to you. It's good that there's progress being made here. That's good news. There is definitely progress being made. And there are a lot of folks around the world at various institutions, not just us, uh, working on this. So it is a very much an international effort. And uh, finally, I just want to say thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Well, that was a lot of fun, Jason. Yep, that was great. Thanks again to Dr. Luke. Good to have an astronaut on. Love it. I love talking to smart people. I really do. It's good. It's good. And I feel I do feel reassured, honestly. Like I, I, I thought those stats about about our progress that we're making towards seeing the big uh, killer asteroids uh, were going to be worse. I think I thought as humans we were doing a really bad job, but it turns out we're we're getting our our act together. It's good. It's good. That's awesome. Uh, so if you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about, and definitely go check out. Uh, the B612 Foundation's website, and you can also look up the Asteroid Day website. We have links in the show notes to both of those. Uh, all of that is over on the web at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 152. Uh, Jason, before we go, do you want to tell us about another show here on Relay FM? Sure. How about Automators? All right. I love that show. Uh, and if, uh, you know, it's it's we think you'll like it if you've ever wanted to do more with your uh, with your devices, and uh, they're dumb, right? Computers are dumb, and uh, you just tell them what to do, and they can do the job, like menial tasks, way better than we can. So why should we waste our time with it? Make the computer do it, and that's what Automators is all about. It's got David Sparks and Rosemary Orchard. They're very smart. They're going to talk about automating your Mac and your your iPad and your iPhone and, I don't know, your house, anything. You think about it, you could probably automate it, and that's what Automators is all about. So go to relay.fm slash automators. Or just search for Automators wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I'd like to thank Squarespace for sponsoring uh, this episode. And again, to Dr. Lou for joining us. Uh, If you want to find us online, you can find Jason on Twitter as J-S-N-E-L-L. And you can find me there as I-S-M-H. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Watch out for asteroids. (laughs) Bye, y'all. (laughs) 